John chapter 6. If you're reading from one of the blue Bibles, it's on page 743. And we'll be reading the uh, verses 1 through 15. John chapter 6, 1 through 15 says this. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is a prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Well, thank you, Mark. If you've got your Bibles, keep those open to John 6. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, before we dive into John 6, um, kind of have to address the elephant in the room. Uh, last week, I was out of town, um, and just so you know, we, we, we take this pulpit pretty seriously around here. We don't just let anybody come up here and talk um, because of uh, the damage some people can do. And um, so I get back Friday from just a, a week of Christian music and sun and, and warm weather, and I'm just in a great mood, and I download the podcast to hear what happened here last week, you know, and or your associate pastor, Adam Connor, was preaching, and, and you can imagine my shock when I hear how he started it. If you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about, where he, he actually invited you and encouraged you to pray harm against me. Um, he wanted you to pray that I would get seasick and experience discomfort. And, and so I started to get really mad at him, right? I thought, I'm going to fire this guy. Um, and then I thought, wait, we have this saying around here, right? It's, it's not what you do, it's why you do it. It's, it's a really core value of this place. And so I said, you know what? Just calm down. You don't know why he did it. You don't know what. But then he kept talking, Right? And, and, he, and he said why he did it. And I almost can't bring myself to say it. It was to encourage Cardinal fans, which is just the most disgusting thing you can do with this platform, right? And so, uh, and so I was like, yep, I'm firing this guy. And so I pulled up the phone, and then a thought hit me. You know, I have this, this life motto. Anybody who offers to take me south from October to March, I'm gone. I'll just say yes, I'll go with him, right, just to get out of winter. And I need him around here in case that happens again. And so I think we settled on he's just going to do my laundry for a year um, just, to, just to make reparations and settle everything over. But um, by the way, if you weren't here last week, please download that sermon because uh, after the garbage heap of the first two minutes, it gets really good. Like if you were here, I mean, 
you talk about a really awesome handling of God's word. And, and so I ended up being thankful that I let Adam speak, you know, right? Um, but, but man, I'm telling you what, he, he brought to light just some awesome truths about Jesus. And so if you weren't here, go to our website, go to the podcast, listen to that. Um, and that, that would do a great, it would do you great service for your soul because I was, I was blown away. So thank you. Despite your intro, thank you for that, Adam. Uh, before we get in John 6, we should probably spiritualize this again, so let's pray, all right? Father, we thank you uh, for your goodness this morning. We thank you for your love. We thank you just for the chance to be here. And, uh, and God, we ask that, that as we look at your word now, Lord, that you would be the one who teaches. God, you'd be the one who speaks. You'd be the one who moves. You'd be the one who convicts. And you'd be the one who gets all the glory. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, around the time I was in lower elementary school, like first and second grade, uh, there was this psychological idea that began to take hold in our nation's educational system, and eventually it just kind of took over our society as a whole. And it was this idea of positive self-affirmation. And the basic gist, as I can explain it to you, is this, that you, you take something that you lack confidence in, something that you struggle with, and then you speak positive, positively to yourself about that thing. I can remember, I still remember this vividly, our, our school counselor, Miss Calkins, I hope she doesn't listen to our podcast, right, because I'm getting ready to rip her, but Miss Calkins would come into our classroom, and, and even as elementary kids, and she would teach us things to say, she would say, boys and girls, what you need to do tomorrow is you need to stand in front of a mirror to start your day, and you look at yourself in your mirror, and you tell yourself, I'm going to have a good day today, I'm smart, I'm beautiful, I'm special. Right? And I, I, I remember, even as little kids, we all looked at each other like, has this lady gone insane? Right? Because here's what we knew, even as like seven and eight-year-olds, we knew not all of us were going to have a good day that day. Right? And, and you need to remember, this was Cloverdale Elementary School. We weren't all smart, I can assure you that. Right? I'm from there. We definitely weren't all beautiful. Right? And special, I'll give you. We were all special right, at Cloverdale. But this idea didn't die there. It got less cheesy, but, but it birthed right, this, the motivational sayings on posters. You remember all these kitten posters and sunrise posters that, that tell you stuff? Motivational sayings on weight room walls. Okay, I still remember the walls of the Cloverdale High School weight room. Yeah, I saw some of you. Yes, I know what a weight room looks like, okay? I know I've got toothpicks for arms. I've been in weight rooms. You've got to take that up with God, okay? The belly's my fault. The arms are his. I've already, been, I've already tried, okay? But right behind the free weights, right, painted on the walls, it says this, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. That's cute. It's not always true, right? I mean, I could try all I want for the next year, and Michael Jordan will still beat me in one-on-one, right? But it's cute, all right? There was another, there's a longer one. I couldn't possibly memorize it for you, but there's a whole poem on the south wall about this, having this fear that wherever your opponent is at that moment, he's outworking you. Okay? Even in today's internet age, social media, right? These motivational posters have been replaced with motivational memes that people share and, and post on their walls, right? And if you don't know what a meme is, well, God bless you. I don't have the time or the ability to bring you up to speed this morning, okay? But the thing is, with all this encouragement, right, all the motivation, all the self-affirmation, there's just one really big problem. There's a 2009 study done by the University of Waterloo that has actually demonstrated scientifically that positive self-affirmations do very little good and, in fact, hurt your mood. Right? They track, they study people, they track that the people who do this, they're actually less motivated. And they're more depressed after doing these, which is just delicious if you think about it. Right? But there's a quick and easy answer as to why we were so drawn to believe this would help as a people. Right? Deep down in our sinful nature, 
we really want to believe that we can discover the answer to our weakness, and we really want that answer to be us. We do. Right? And so we, we quickly buy into these ideas that all you have to do is just by, by rechanneling your thinking, just by setting some New Year's resolution, just by launching a new diet, just by looking in the mirror and speaking positively of yourself, you, we can believe that we can do it. This even plays out in our faith. Right? There's, there's a really growing, like this is alarming to me, there's a growing popularity of some really dangerous teachers out there who are calling themselves Christian pastors. And they have these massive churches and, and hugely popular podcasts and, and growing influence. But if you listen, listen carefully to what they're teaching you, this is what you hear. They're telling you that God's just waiting to bless you. He's just, he's just waiting to heal you. He's just waiting to fix you. All you need to do is just claim it. Right? That you need to harness the power of positive thinking. That you need to claim your victory and believe it. And that's going to unlock God's blessings in your life when it's really easy to figure out who the hero of that kind of religion is. That's you. Right? You're the one unlocking the healings. You're the one unlocking the blessings. You're the one claiming them. You get the glory, not God. And so it's cheap. And it's pathetic. And it's dangerous. And it's evil. And not only that, on top of that, it doesn't work. Not only is it not supported by a proper reading of the scriptures, even science has proven this simply does not work. And standing in direct opposition to all this is Jesus Christ. In direct opposition to all this is the word of God. You see, the Bible, throughout its existence, has been this deliverer of great hope and great encouragement and great optimism and great promise. It's a source of strength. Right? But none of the encouragement in the Bible, none of that hope and promise and optimism comes in the form of a boost to your own self-esteem. Because what the Bible has to offer you is so much more than what some motivational poster has for you. What the Bible has to offer you is real. The Bible points you to Jesus, and he actually accomplishes things. Right? He has this, un, this insanely wonderful combination of being immensely powerful and unspeakably compassionate. And today in John 6, we get, we get a look at a story where we'll see both of those wondrous qualities on display. In the passage that, that Mark read for you, verse 1 starts with this little phrase that says, some time after this. Now, John's being slick there, okay? Because with just that short phrase, he's covered a really big amount of time. And there's reason for this, right? John is one of four gospels in the Bible, four books that cover the birth, life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find them at the start of the New Testament, they're all telling us the same story. Right? They're all recording the life and ministry of the same Jesus. But here's the, here's the awesome thing. They all come to it with a unique perspective and purpose. For instance, Luke was a historian. So when you read his gospel, he very eloquently lays out chronologically the events in his gospel. He takes note of geography and time stamps and who was ruling in history at that time. Matthew was a Jewish man, right? And so he wrote his gospel with first century Jewish audience in mind. It's why throughout Matthew you're going to hear this phrase over and over again, and thus Jesus fulfilled the prophecy, and then he quotes it. Because he's writing to people who know the Jewish scriptures. John's purpose was more evangelistic. He states it for us in his book. He writes towards the end of his book, he wrote this gospel so that his readers may believe in Jesus. And so as he recalls the things that he heard, he recalls the things that he saw, he recalls the things that Jesus did, what remained for John was this ultimate authority of Jesus, how Jesus was in control of every room and situation he found himself in. These gospels are fascinating to read because they all have these different perspectives and God chose to include them all in his word. 
But the thing about all four of them, all four of them devote the majority of their books to the last year of Jesus' earthly ministry. John just gets there quicker. He's a little more efficient. Right? So when he says sometime after this, he's jumped to there. This is the start of Jesus' last year on earth. Right? And there's a couple things that have occurred. John the Baptist is dead. Right? Since we last, when we left John 5, John the Baptist was alive. Now he's dead. He's been beheaded by Herod. Jesus has also, in the meantime, he's just sent out his disciples in groups of two. Sent them out throughout Galilee to preach about the kingdom of God. And this resulted in some really cool results for them, which we'll get to later. And now here in John 6, we're entering Jesus' third and final year of his earthly ministry. And John tells us in verse 2 that Jesus went up on this mountainside with his disciples. And in verse 5, he looks out and he sees this great crowd coming towards him. The, the neat thing about this miracle we're reading about today, it's the only miracle that Jesus performed that all four gospel writers wrote about. Somehow it's significant enough that all four of them decided to include them in their, in their stories. And so we're told in Matthew and Mark that when Jesus saw this huge crowd coming toward him, what he felt for them was compassion. Because right? we know from the other gospels, they've been following him for days. And as they follow him, he's been teaching them, he's been healing them sick, but, but they just won't go home. Right? Every time he separates the disciples, they just follow him again. And, and so he knows they're going to eventually need to eat. Right? They didn't have any travel coolers back in the day that somebody's got to get them food. And so he poses a question to his disciples. Look at verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? I'm going to confess to you, I feel a little bad for Philip here. Because he doesn't know what he's walking into. By the time this story unfolds, it's going to feel like Philip was set up because he was. Because Jesus never missed an opportunity to teach these men. He loved them. He was discipling them. But everyone who's ever learned anything, think about things that you've learned in your life. You know that at times it takes you looking like a fool to learn it. At times to really learn something, it takes getting things wrong and learning from those mistakes. And so here Jesus turns to his disciples and he presents this problem to them. There's this huge crowd coming after Jesus and they haven't eaten anything. So somebody needs to find them food and it's just Philip's turn to learn a lesson. And the reason is because the closest town to where Jesus and his disciples are in this story is Bethsaida. That's where Philip was from. That's why he got chosen. All right, and so there's a bread market, right? There's some sort of first century version of a grocery store, there's some kind of grandma who can just churn out loaf after loaf after loaf, Philip's going to know where it is. And so Jesus asks him, hey, hey, man, where, where can we go into town and buy food for all these people? And this is what we're told in verse 6. I love this detail. John 6, verse 6, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. This had to be frustrating for the disciples. Right? It was always to their good. They always learn things and never forget, but, but man, there, there are times that I read these Gospels with, with 2,000 years worth of Monday morning quarterbacking. I just wish I could travel back in time, just huddle up with them real quick and say, guys, guys, listen, never forget if Jesus asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. Right? He's trying to get you to think about something in a new way. He's trying to teach you. He's, he's, he's presenting to you. So don't go with your gut answer. Don't go with the first thing you think of. Now, Jesus knows this is a ridiculous question he's asking Philip. We're told in verse 10, this crowd has 5,000 men in it. But there's no Sam's Club or Costco in Bethsaida. It's a preposterous question. But I love the line John writes for us that Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. 
See, this exchange will end with Philip seeing a display of power that he's never seen. It's going to end with Philip learning a lesson he would never forget. But like, like any good coach, any good teacher, Jesus puts just as much value in the journey of getting Philip there as he does in arriving at the destination. He doesn't want to skip the journey. And if you read the Gospels, it can read as if Jesus is messing with people. And it's because he is. Right? It's because he's always two, three, 100 infinity steps ahead of whoever he's talking to. And so he always had an angle, right? He was always working for their good. But he always knew where he was going to take someone before he talked to them so he didn't bypass the journey. If you think about it, you've been with us. We've, we've already seen this in John. Right? He lets the woman at the well in John 4, he lets her ask all her questions. Then he lets her feel the great conviction of her sin all before ever telling her who he is. In John 3, he lets Nicodemus struggle and wrestle with the idea that he's not understanding what Jesus is saying. Then he tells Nicodemus, you should already understand this. This shouldn't be too big for you before he explains it further to him. Right? He, he, he invites the struggle. Right? And it wasn't just in conversations and it wasn't just for that time. Psalm 139 says that all the days ordained for me were written in God's book before a single one of them occurs. Philippians 1, 6, Paul is writing to the church at Philippi and he tells them that he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. To, to completion. So listen to me when I tell you this this morning. Jesus already has in mind what he's going to do with you. He already has in mind what he's going to do through you in this life. He already has in mind what he's going to do in you in this life. But just like he did for the disciples, he greatly values you experiencing that journey. Because he doesn't just want to bring you to a point where you intellectually know things. He is trying to shape you and form you and build your reliance and trust on him. He's making you into a masterpiece. Which sounds good until we realize that in that process, he must let you wrestle. He has to let you struggle. He has to bring you to a point where you have questions. Because he knows that you getting to the point where you're taking really hard questions to God is really good for your soul. I heard someone speaking this week. They quoted their spouse. And they were talking about the time that they lost their child. Their child died. And he's, this guy was quoting his wife. And her quote was this. She said, I sank all the way to the bottom. And I found out that the bottom was firm because God was there. You see, Jesus is unafraid of testing you. He's unafraid of challenging you. He's unafraid of stretching you because he's forming you. What we want is we want God to fix things immediately. We want the answers and we want them now, right? Jesus, just tell me, am I going to have a job or not? Right? Tell me where to go. Tell me what to do. T take this temptation from me, Jesus. Jesus, fix my marriage. Fix this problem. Give me what I want right now. But Jesus never calls himself a handyman, a traffic cop, or a genie. You know what God calls himself in his word? A potter. And he's forming us. Right? And he already knows. He already sees what, he's going, what you're going to look like. And so what you're experiencing right now is testing. It's shaping. It's forming. It's part of living life in the sinful world. But please, do not despise the process. Trust it. Don't, don't miss the shaping. Give yourself over to it. Don't let bitterness take hold. Just, just why don't you take some questions to God? Ask him, God, what, what is it you're wanting me to learn through this? What's, what's the rough edge in my heart or character that, that you're trying to smooth out and remove right now? See, Philip would have had a much less humbling lesson had he just asked, 
well, what do you want to do, Jesus? I mean, you got any ideas? How can, I, how can I serve your vision for feeding these people? Instead, in verse 7, Philip just answers the question like we all would have. Are you insane? Like, it's irrelevant how much, where we could buy bread because there's nowhere in any town with this much bread. Not even to mention the money. It would take more than half a year's wages to give each of them just one single bite. You see, Philip did the math. He looked out, he saw the people, he quickly calculated how much bread it would take, and he realized there is no store in Bethsaida that has that much bread. And even if there was a store with that capability, there was no way they had enough money to buy it. It is by all intents and purposes. This is just impossible. So impossible that the question is preposterous. But then in verse 8, there's another of Jesus' disciples who speaks up. Verse 8, another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? If you were here, remember back in chapter 1, we told you that when we met Andrew, all throughout the book of John, every time you see Andrew, he's going to be doing one thing. He's going to be bringing someone to Jesus. That's just what he did. In this instance, Andrew decides, I'm not, I'm not going to try to do the math. I'm not going to try to figure out the numbers. I'm just going to go looking for resources. And he finds one boy with a lunch, right? This boy has five small loaves of bread and two fish. And, and Andrew isn't perfect here, but I want you to see, give him this much credit, he at least stays in the tension, he brings this boy in his small lunch to Jesus, and that he shows faith. But then he admits out loud that he has questions as to how this small amount can be of any help. But let's give him this much credit. He at least asked a question. I mean, you look at Philip. Philip makes a declarative statement. Philip, presumably the others, are all thinking, what a ridiculous request, Jesus. This is impossible. Forget it. Andrew's saying... So here's this handful of food. It's not much, but what do you think you can do with it? But I, I might be giving him too much credit. Obviously, I can't read the mind of somebody who lived 2,000 years ago, but I know this. We aren't there yet, but we're getting closer to the faith that God asks from us when we're at least asking questions of God instead of declaring situations to be impossible. Especially when you're taking those questions to Jesus. Found one lunch, Jesus. What? How far can this go? Look at verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Jesus never once complains that this is all he has. He takes everything that was given to him, this measly little scraps, and he thanks the Father for them. And then he feeds thousands with it. He took five small loaves and two fish, and he fed thousands, and they all ate until they were full. This was an amazing display of, of miraculous power by Jesus. And at this point, I think we need to pause real quick and just ask one question, and, and you'll understand why in a minute. But the question I want to ask you is this. Did Jesus need that kid's lunch to feed these people? Let's think about that logically, Okay. If he can take just this handful of food and feed thousands of people with it, does he even need the handful? Are we really going to suggest that, that the key to unlocking Jesus' power was at least having some scraps to start with? No, the source of Jesus' power is himself. It's that he's God. He didn't need this lunch. He used it, but he didn't need it. And you might be thinking, who? Oh, oh, who cares? Why is that important? Here's why it's important. 
It's important because it helps us understand the point of this miracle. If back in verse 6 we're told that that Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do, that means he already had a goal in mind. He already had a lesson in mind. He had something that he wanted someone to learn, including us. And I've heard this miracle taught him before where all the focus becomes on the boy. That he's lifted up as the example that we are to follow. And the idea is that he could have kept this lunch all to himself. And he'd have been full, right? That's sufficient enough for a boy. But he gave all of that away to Jesus. And then he and all the rest of the people were fed. By giving to Jesus, both he and many others were blessed. Which is a fine application. Right? Because it doesn't contradict with the teaching of God's word in anywhere else. And to be honest, the reason I've heard it taught this way is because I've taught it that way. I've done it. I mean, I don't know if it's because I'm getting older or what, but... But as I read it again, I just don't think it's wise of us to take the focus off Jesus in this story. Because he brought the miracle. And in no way did he need this boy's lunch. This past week, I heard one of the the lead singers of a Christian group called For King and Country. He's just shared a part of his life story. And he talked about it. And a couple years ago, he he got sick, and they weren't sure what it was. They, there was no diagnosis. He just knew he was sick, and he just kept getting sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker, and he lost a lot of weight. He couldn't get out of bed, and there was real concern he was going to die. And months into this process, he shared it. He got to a point where he just began to get angry with God. Because looking at his shoes, he, he, God had given him this talent, but instead of using it for himself, he'd used it for God. He'd given his whole life to God. He'd used all his talents to glorify God. He was trying everything he could to make a big deal out of God, and it didn't seem right that this was the payoff for that. He could have used those talents for himself, right? But no, he used them for God, and now this is what he gets. And so he mentioned praying real honestly to God about that and how God taught him, I don't need your talents. I don't need your act of service. I can raise anyone else up. I want to do what you do. What I want is your heart. This is a fantastic principle for us to remember as we live and serve God in this life. If you are using the talents that you have for God, awesome, that's what you should do. If, if you've committed to regularly giving your money to his kingdom, your faithful tither, awesome, that's what you should do. If you're trying, one of your goals is to be a living sacrifice and that wherever he sends you and wherever he places you, that you're going to live for him. Awesome, that's what you should do, but he doesn't need you. He doesn't need your talents. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your acts of service. There's nothing that you can give him that he needs. So why take the boy's lunch? Why does he command us to use our talents? Why does he command us to give of our money and our resources and our lives for his kingdom? It all comes back to his motivation. He wants your heart. He wants your worship. He wants your devotion. And here's what he knows about you. When you let go of something, you actually let go of something lesser than him, be it your money, your talents, your life, your dreams. When you let go of something, you let go of its ability to own you. And the more that you do this, the more that you squeeze and hold on to and say, this is mine, the more you are a slave to those things. Too many people are owned by things that God gave them. They're slaves to their possessions. They're slaves to their schedules. They're slaves to their bank account. They're slaves to their own ambitions and dreams and goals. We are called to be a slave to Jesus and Jesus only. 
And so he asked his followers to let go, to give things away, to lay things down, because in doing so, you will find the freedom to serve him and him alone. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, which means this is of highest importance, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. The reason God calls us to serve him, the reason he calls you to give and to sacrifice is because he's guarding and protecting your heart. We experience the most joy as human beings when our devotion is centered solely on Jesus alone. And by the way, if you just want to be logical... We see from this miracle that anything we give to God, he does far more with it than we ever could. Right? The return on investment just makes so much more sense. And then in verse 12, I believe we see the point of the miracle. It becomes clear. Verse 12. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. And so they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who'd eaten. Okay, so the thousands have eaten. They've all enjoyed their meal. They're all full. Jesus has provided miraculously, and now he turns his attention back to his disciples. John will tell us in verse 14, the crowd was really impressed by this miracle, but they weren't the point. This was all about Jesus' disciples. And John, or Jesus, turns to Philip and the rest, all those who said, we don't have the bread, we don't have the money, this is impossible. And he says this, just think about this line, go get the leftovers. First of all, the idea that there would be leftovers is hilarious. But what's even funnier is the amount. Twelve basketfuls of leftovers. There were twelve disciples. One basket for each of those guys. One basket each of them had to carry and look at. One basket each of them had to sit there and stare at and contemplate. Are you starting to get the picture? Y'all did the math, Jesus is telling them. You ran the figures, right? You, you counted the money. You told me how impossible this was. And you came close, but, but not one of you actually asked, well, can you feed them, Lord? Think about it. In the book of John, even though John skipped so much time, he's already turned water into wine. He's already healed a royal official's son without ever even going to his house. He's already made a cripple of 38 years get up and walk. The most interesting thing to me is that in the other gospels, we are told that Jesus has sent out his disciples in groups of two just before this miracle occurs. You can read this in Mark 6 and Luke 9. They record this for us. And when they come back, they've been sent out by Jesus to preach in the country. And when they come back, they're all excited. All right, they tell Jesus, you won't believe this, Jesus. When we went out, we drove out demons. We healed sick people in your name. Some of the stuff that you've been doing, we actually did it, Jesus. We did it. I mean, think of how encouraging that must have been to them. Think about how much confidence that would give them. But you see, one year from this miracle, Jesus will go to the cross. And after the cross, there will be the resurrection, and then he will sin and return to his Father in heaven, and his church will be started and served by these disciples. And they need to know something. He needed to recenter them in their excitement. He could have corrected them in the moment, but this would leave an impact they wouldn't forget. What they needed to know was this. They didn't heal anyone. They didn't cast out a single demon. They didn't lead anyone to repent. He did it. Because his power does not require him, require him to be physically present. He'd already healed the official son right in front of their eyes without going to his home. He didn't send out those 12 to preach because he needed them to go do it for him. He did it so they could join in the greatest calling that any human can get. To actively serve God's kingdom with his one life forgiven. 
And so he needs to take that exuberance and needs to recenter it and make it clear to them that victory is not dependent on them. Results are not up to them, but that their hope, their trust, and their dependence needs to stay on him. Yeah, guys, you went out and you preached and you cast out demons and you healed people, but then you came right back and you told me this was impossible. And what they needed to be reminded of is that they're not on his level. They're not even close. And when he goes back to the Father, if they will ever see God work through them, they have to learn that they are not the ones who bring the victory. It's always Jesus. You see, throughout the Bible, whenever God's people needed boldness, right, whenever they needed encouragement and faith and confidence, whenever they need puffed up, right, God actually shows up and encourages them. He does it in the Old and New Testament. But you know what he never tells them? Despite what some people teach today? Never one time does God tell his people, you can do this. You, you've got this, right? You're, you're awesome. You're great. If you just believe in yourself, you'll do it. Not once does he say that. Instead, whenever they need confidence, whenever they need it encouraged or boldness or faith, God comes to them and he says, I will be with you. Do not fear. Joshua, be strong and courageous. Not because you're awesome, but because I am. I've got this. You see, Jesus made these disciples go and gather the leftovers so their minds would get this. He just fed, they're looking at this bread and say, he just fed 5,000 people, not with my strength, not with my ability, not with my intellect, not with my abundance, but from my complete lack thereof. I had no food. I had no money. I had no solutions. I had no answers. And he fed 5,000 people anyway a lot of humility in those baskets okay so we need to know what this means for us right and I'm I'm telling you the implications aren't that complicated they're pretty clear there are people in this room today I know who need a miracle but there's something in your life there's something that's, that's come along your way that you just don't have the answer to the solution's beyond you it's just bigger than you. For some of you, it, maybe it's recent. For some, you may have been facing this for months, even years. I don't know. But here's what I do know. I will not do you the harm this morning of telling you that you need to bring your fishes and loaves to God. I will not do you the harm of telling you that you need to do your best and let God do the rest. I'm not going to do the harm of telling you that you need to try everything you can and then ask God to come in behind and bless your efforts. That is harmful, unbiblical advice. You know what's never in the Bible? God helps those who help themselves. Cover to cover, it's not in there. Let's stop saying it, okay? But you know what we are told throughout? We are told that God helps those who recognize their desperate need for him. Those who who lay down their solutions, who admit their great need for him to move on their behalf. So if you need a miracle this morning, man, I want you to come to God today with nothing more than your burdens. And don't do this thing that we try to do. Don't try to make a deal with him. Don't try to barter with him. Don't tell him, okay, God, if you fix this in the rest of my days, I'll be faithful. Don't do that. You can't negotiate with him. Just fall before him and say, Lord, I need you. I can't do this. I can't fix this. I can't face this on my own. Put it all on Jesus. He's got really big shoulders. He bore the weight of the sins of the entire world on his shoulders. Your problem is nothing to him. 
He can take your problem. He can carry your burdens. He can shoulder your load. He invites you to give it to him in Matthew 11. God isn't looking for you to act like you've got it all together. He isn't looking for you to act like you have all the answers. He isn't looking for you to be fake and act like life is good. He wants us to be real and transparent. Because his power, we are told in 2 Corinthians 12, is made perfect in our weakness. Not in our strength. Not in our wisdom, not in our intellect, not in our effort, not in our awesomeness, in our nothingness, and our weakness. When we have no answers, Jesus' power is made absolutely perfect in that situation. And by the way, this doesn't just apply when you need a miracle or when you're facing some major crisis. Can I, can I just take a moment and be really transparent with you this morning? I've been your pastor for 16 months. For some of you, I'm sure it feels like 16 years. It's been one of the great honors of my life, but I'm going to tell you a little secret this morning. I have no idea what I'm doing. That's, I'm not joking. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm completely in over my head. Okay, day after day, there's situations who come before me, calls, I get different things, where, where there's nothing within me, there's nothing within my wisdom, there's nothing in my power that I have any kind of answer to. I mean, God bless my wife, Corinne, and Adam, who just hear me dump things on them all the time, right? On top of that, right, I, I, we've got two beautiful little girls at home, and I want nothing more than to raise them into two beautiful women whose beauty come from their devotion to Jesus. I want nothing more that they would be selfless, that they would serve others, that they would love God far more than anything else in their life. These are my goals and, I, and ambitions for them, but I have no idea what I'm doing. And here's the thing. The estrogen is coming. It's not even here yet, right? And when it arrives, I'm just going to be like, what is happening, okay? I, I don't know what I'm doing. So what do I do? I put all my hope and all, hear me, all of my trust in Jesus. I need him. I need him to take this place where he wants it to go. I don't care where I want it to go. I need him to meet you all here and move in your lives in ways that I could never speak to or come up with on my own. I need him to shape and form me in ways that I could never do. I need him to love and guide and shape my girls into the image that he has for them. I need him because I don't have the answers. So what I am resolved to do, and I'm unshaken on this, by the way, is that as long as I have breath in my lungs and as long as he hands me a microphone, I will call and beg and plead and demand if I have to for you to just trust him. Do not trust this place. Do not trust me. Do not, I love these people. Do not trust them. Trust Jesus. It's not deeper than that, right? And it, it's, it can't possibly be more important than that. But for your life, for your eternity, for your sin, for your marriage, for your family, for your career, for your future, your job, your direction, your hope, your everything, trust Jesus. He has this. He already has in mind what he's going to do with you. And in that process, right, you're going to be in over your head. And hear me, that's really good for you. If you're there now, I know it doesn't feel like it, but this is good for you. In, in that process, you're going to face things that you don't, you would have never chosen, you never want to face. And he, he says, I'm going to bring good out of this. So trust him, lean into the process. 
Last thing, I, wanna, I do want to say this. There may be some here today who need a miracle and they don't even know it. See, if you've never believed in Jesus and trusted him for your eternity and standing with God, then whether you recognize it or not, you are in desperate need of a miracle. The Bible tells us that our sin makes us actually living enemies of God. That our sins separate us from God. That keep us in a state of spiritual death until we physically die. And then we will spend an eternity apart from God in hell. And if that's not the bad news, it's this. Worse than that, the Bible says there's nothing we can do about it. Right, there's no good works you can do. There's no chant you can go over. There's no list you can check off to make things right. What we need is a miracle. And so going to church, right, trying to be fair to others, being a good person, however you define that, looking out for your family, man, all those are good things. But there's not a single one of them that solves your sin debt. There's not a single one of them that brings a miracle. What you need to do is trust Jesus completely with your life and your eternity. You need to trust the one who died on a cross, not for anything he'd done, but for all the sins that you owed to God. You need to trust the one who took on death to offer you forgiveness in life if you believe in him. You need to trust him. So I don't, I don't know all the specific needs that are around this room. Some of you surprised me with some this morning. There's no possible way I've got my finger on the pulse of all your lives. I don't, I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what all you're trying to accomplish. I don't know everything you're going through, but I know this. The answer to all of them is the same. The answer is the person.